Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, let me go ahead and pray for us. And we're going to dig into this thing. God in heaven, we pray and. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to be able to come once again just to hear your word, um, to set together saints, Lord, to be able to come into an, an atmosphere of worship this Christmas season. God, may it be actually about you this year, not about us, not about materials, not about the events or the things we have to buy, Lord, but may it actually be about you being here with us and being present with us. So God, I pray for us as we sit here in this text in Mark. God, I pray and ask for your, your spirit, your boldness, your confidence, your strength, your excitement, your zeal, God. And the same for those who are sitting here as well. God, I pray you still our anxieties and our emotions. God, help us not worry about what's happening later today or the travel that has to come or the Amazon list that needs to be fulfilled or wherever our minds may wander today, Lord. Keep us centered. Keep us focused, God. Help us actually, actually experience your presence today. God, may we actually see you as who you are here in the text. God, as the better seed, as the better son, as the better king today. May we catch a glimpse of your presence on the throne and what you look like. God, I pray that you would feel this room the next 30, 35 minutes or so. God, just, just fill it with yourself. Be real, be tangible to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen and amen. All right, so we're currently in a season called... Advent. That's the Christmas season for the church. The church calls it Advent. And what that means, the word Advent means to, to await or to long for. And so in, in our case, we're awaiting, we're longing for this king to come. What's beautiful about Advent is that the church globally does Advent. So there are millions of Christians all around the world that are adventing, that are waiting, that are longing for this king. And so the, the season is Advent, but the series that we're in is called Promises. 
And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the promises that have been given to us, to God's people, uh, from God himself. And so let me just remind you or, or just tell you for the first time, if you're new today, the last three weeks as we've been setting in this series together, what we looked at is this. The first week we looked at the book of Genesis and the reality that God had promised a seed, a better seed would come. There'd be a better Adam that would come. And then week two, Pastor David preached, and we looked at Abraham and Isaac, and God had promised that there would be a better father who would send a better son that would be a better sacrifice. So a better son was promised to us. And then last week, I got to preach, and we got to look at King David and God's covenant to King David that he would establish a better king and a better kingdom and a better name than we could ever dream of or we could ever imagine. And so we saw a better seed, a better son, a better king was coming. And so my hope today, and this is a, this is a lofty hope, church. I got a lot to say. It's a big hope today, is to actually show you how the book of Mark reveals in chapter one that Jesus is, in fact, the better seed, the better son, and the better king. We're like, I'm going to take you to, if you ain't already been taken to church, you're going to get taken to seminary today. We're going to do an exegetical look at Mark chapter one. And I'm just been praying all week that God would, that would, he would allow this thing to work. And you might ask, like, okay, why is that, why is it important Jesus, like, or why is it important, Pastor, that you always want to tell us that everything is pointing to Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, and Jesus has met all of God's expectations? Well, the reality is this. If you don't, listen, if you don't know the story of Adam and Eve, like, you can know Jesus, but you can't really know Jesus, because you don't know what he accomplished. And if you don't, like, really, if you don't know the stories, like Pastor David preached on Abraham and Isaac, and you don't see that parallel between a better father sending a better son— you can know Jesus, but you can't really know like, what he's really accomplished for you in your place. And it's the same with King David last week. If you, if you don't know King David, I would argue you can't really know Jesus. Because you, can't, you don't get like, the beauty of him, like the magnificent work that he's done, the ultimate fulfillment that he's done of all scriptures. It loses value or it never holds value for you if you don't know the Bible. And so what happens then is... Um, you will begin to create a Jesus that fits your image instead of a Jesus that comes actually out of God's word. And according to Barner Research, 93% of Christians are walking around, 93% of Christians are walking around and cannot give a clear description as to who Jesus is, according to the Bible. 93%. Why is it important that we set in these promises and we look at how everything is pointing to Jesus and how Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of every single text. Because if we don't, listen, you will, I will, we will collectively as a church, and this happens church, tell me it doesn't happen in our culture, we will begin to create a Jesus that fits our image, a, a Jesus that we can manage, a Jesus that we can control, a Jesus that we can have authority over. And whenever we do that, what happens is that Christianity becomes like every other religion. Right, Because every other religion, every other world religion, Eastern religion says, hey, just look inside of yourself. You know, you just, another self-help book maybe, or look inside your health, yourself, and maybe look inside your health. That is a pretty hot in our culture too. And, and they'll say, well, God is a spark. God is a, is a light. And if you just look inside yourself, man, you can find nirvana. You can find salvation. And then whenever you die and you pass on from this place, you can be this little pretty speck of light that just kind of floats around with God for eternity. That sounds boring. And so in that, like, like that's not what we want, right? We don't, we don't want you to think that God is some little speck of light inside of your chest, right? And you can find salvation by looking into yourself. That's not what Christianity says. 
It says that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every single thing that's ever been said ever in Scripture for all time. He's the fulfillment of everything. And if we don't get to know who he is in all of it, like all of it, how all of it's pointing to him, then we don't know who Jesus is. And our job as pastors, listen, is very simple. It's to present you mature in Christ. Not, not in anything else, not necessarily in culture, not in all the other cultural gods, but specifically in Jesus Christ. That is why we're looking at, that's why we talk about these promises. So the big idea for you is real simple. The big idea is this. The promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what the whole series is about, isn't it? If you're a note taker, this would be a great time for you to shine. Write that down. The promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're not a note taker, I would encourage you to become one and get those notes out in the back of your seat because we are going to hit it hard. You ready? Okay, we're going to wake you all up this morning. You guys ready? Okay, thank you. Gosh, I don't know know what happened. Christmas week came and you all shut down. Mark brings such an intensity, you have to match it. The the Gospel of Mark is one of the most intense books in the whole entire Bible. Okay, and so Mark here comes out. Man, when I think about Mark, I literally think about Pastor David Seaton over there. Like Mark comes out swinging on on this crowd of people. He comes out like a pit bull, right? He is like off the leash. If you look at Mark, literally, it says immediately, 11 times in the first chapter, he's like immediately this and immediately that and immediately this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And the whole point that Mark is doing is Mark is coming out, talking to a group of people that, do, that are claimed to believe in God but don't actually believe in God. Looks a lot like the, lot like the church sometimes, doesn't it? And so he's coming out to kind of give this defense for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three things here in the book of Mark. We're going to look at Jesus is the better seed, like we saw first week. We're going to look at Jesus is the better son, like we saw the second week. And we're going to look at Jesus is the better king, like we, I got to preach last weekend. So we're going to start with Jesus is the better seed. And it says this in the text. Linda, if you could put this up, verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel. Somebody say beginning. beginning. Mark, there she is. Thank you. Mark begins the gospel with this wild claim. And Mark comes out and he says, this is the beginning of good news, the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of good news. And Mark begins in this way with this same language on purpose. And what Mark is saying is that the very power that spoke creation in the beginning has now come as a new beginning. He's literally using Genesis language. And so to quote James Edward, who's this great philosopher on this text, he says, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. Check that out. He's likening it to the creation narrative, to the story in Genesis 1. What is Mark saying? Mark is saying this. This is the new seed. This is the better seed. This is the better Adam that is coming. This is what has always been promised. This is the new chapter. This is the new beginning. This is the new generation. To use the Hebrew from Genesis, this is the new Toledot. Something all new is happening. Something completely other is happening. The creation has never experienced before. Mark is saying, this is that thing. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3? God promised to send an offspring. Do you remember that, Jews? They'd be like, yeah, yeah, we remember that. That's what the Jews would have said. Yeah, that's what Joey said too. Joey said, yeah. And so, <laughs> Joey, you're not Jewish. Okay, it's cool. <laughs> and so, and so, 
He's saying, do you remember? Like, this is the beginning of this gospel. Mark is telling us at the beginning of good news that every single beginning of every bit of good news begins with Jesus Christ. So then the gospel is not just a book. The gospel is not just some prayer that we pray to receive salvation. The gospel is the very power of God on display in Christ, taking us back to the beginning. Well, what is the gospel, Corey? I'm I'm new. I don't understand what the gospel is. Real simple. We think about it like this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So creation. We were created in God's image, Genesis 1 and 2. And then we have the fall. We choose ourselves. We make God in our image. This is what Adam and Eve did. I got to teach on this text in Genesis 3. In the next slide, we have redemption from Genesis 3 all the way through new creation. When Jesus Christ returns, we are setting in Advent, this promise to send a seed or this offspring or this better Adam. Everything that happened from Genesis 3 all the way through now until Jesus returns is literally a season of Advent. We're just waiting on God. The Messiah has come, and now we, as 21st century Christians, are waiting on Jesus to come back. We're still sitting in a season of Advent. What is he going to do when he comes back? Restoration. God will restore all things back the way they were. Not like we're going to be naked in a garden, but he's going to reverse the total curse of sin for us. That is good news. And what that reveals, then, is that we can't save ourselves, nor do we have to save ourselves. And so Mark is intentionally taking these Jews back to Genesis, paralleling his language with the, the language of Genesis. It's crazy that he does this. And he's ultimately saying that this is a new beginning in Christ Jesus. There's a new seed. There's a better seed. There is victory. He's no longer just promised in your scroll, but he's actually walking among you. There's this better seed. I read this quote this week that said, the gospel is more than a set of truths or beliefs. It's a person, and he has come as promised. Like everything that the Jews had been told and waiting for their whole entire life, it, it, like he showed up. You get it? This is what John the Baptist is saying. Everything you've craved, everything you've longed for, he's come. Thousands upon thousands of years, they've been waiting on this Messiah, sharing these stories around the table. And John the Baptist is saying, do you remember Genesis, the new beginning? This is that. This is that new beginning. We've got to do a little bit more work before we move on. Have you ever heard uh, someone say, I mean, where does the Bible explicitly say that Jesus is God? Have you ever heard anyone say that argument? Where does the Bible explicitly say Jesus is God. Well, the word Jesus derives from the word Yeshua or Joshua, which literally means God of salvation. And so Mark, as he's starting this off here, he's talking about Jesus's name. Jesus's name literally means the God of salvation. So the next time someone looks at you and says, where does the Bible explicitly say? Just say his, it's in his freaking name, God. His name is literally God of salvation. It's Yeshua. It's Joshua. It's all the same. Now, that's in, why do I say that? Because we, like, we don't really think the way that they thought. So whenever we talk about God, we'll use words like God, we'll use words Jesus, we'll use the word Christ, we'll use the word Lord, we'll use the word Father. We use all these different pronouns to explain who God is, and sometimes all in one prayer, right? You hear someone pray, and they're like, Lord, God, Lord, Lord, God, Father. You know, you, know, you guys know that guy and so, or that gal, right? They just that didn't really pray anything. They just say his name a lot of different ways. Yeah, okay. And so if that's you, we'll pray for you. Lord God, Lord God, Father, Lord. Pray for them. In their time, words mattered, okay? Names 
held a great deal of value and, and gave a great deal of identity. And so Mark is beginning this first line. We're still just in the first verse here. And he says, Jesus Christ. He literally calls him the Lord of salvation and the Messiah. Now, whenever you think about my name, Corey, um, no one really calls me Pastor Corey. Austin McCarter, if he'll, he'll be here in the next service, he calls me Pastor Corey. He's literally the only person I know in my life that calls me that. And, and so one day he actually came up to me and he uh, apologized for it a little bit. He's like, hey, sorry I call you Pastor. And I was like, I don't mind you calling me Pastor. Literally, there's no one else that calls me that. Maybe Jess calls me that. And so outside of that, most people don't. She's like, what about me? And so um, no other dudes call me that. And so in that, most people don't call me that, right? They call me Corey. Well, what's interesting about that, though, is this, okay? Corey is my name, um, but pastor is an identity that they have given me. And it's just kind of a, and it's great, and it's beautiful. And so when I was talking to him on the phone. He's like, hey, sorry, I'll call you that. I was like, I don't care that you call me that. And he said this. He said, I, like, I just like to be reminded of whose teaching I sit under. I thought, man, that's really reverent and beautiful. Thank you for saying that. And so what's interesting then is that whenever Mark comes out, he makes this claim of, this is Jesus Christ. We say that word so often that it actually begins to lose flavor, which kind of shows the state of our hearts, doesn't it? But what Mark is doing, he's coming out and he's saying, his name is Jesus, but his identity is the Christ. Like, this is the God of your salvation. This is Yeshua Christos. And what's beautiful about that then is that the prologue, the opening line for Mark, Linda, if you were to put it up in like the original language, would read like this. I believe you have that. Do you have that? Yeah. This is the beginning of the good news about the God of salvation, our, put that up there, our Messiah, the Son of God. And so Mark, again, he's coming out and he's saying like everything that you've longed for, everything that you're waiting for, this is the beginning, using the language of Genesis, of the good news, the gospel, about the God of salvation, Jesus, our Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And he's just making this audacious claim, this true claim here that God has come in the flesh as he was promised he would. The better seed has come. And what's beautiful about that is that by his name, Jesus, man, he's relational, He's near, he's loving, he's kind, he's someone you can tangibly grab a hold of and touch. But by his identity, the Christ, I mean, he's the God of our salvation. And so in that, like, it should create in us this same longing that the Jews would have had that Mark is communicating to. As we said, as 21st century American Christians in a season of Advent. We should think, yes, Jesus is, he is near, he is close. He's most certainly coming back to fulfill that for us as the better seed. He's also the Christos. He's the Messiah. He's going to save us. He's the God of our salvation. And so Mark begins this whole thing with in the beginning to parallel the Genesis narrative. Have I made that clear? He's saying the better seed has come. The second thing he says then is Jesus is the better son. Jesus is the better Son, you're going to have to stay with me on here, and you're going to have to wake up a little bit more. I think we can get through it. The beginning of the, uh, verse 1, Linda, back to verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I feel like we could probably just bump onto the third point at this point, don't you think? It literally just says, the Son of God. Verse 2, though, hear the promise. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, just like that, before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He has come. 
The messenger has come. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He's a nut. And he preached, and he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to pick this apart line by line, but we're going to hit it. And so Mark here is saying he's writing. Uh, the Old Testament prophets, he's saying they, the Old Testament prophets promised that this is, would happen, that there's a better son that would come, and the way that we know that better son would come is that there would be a messenger who would come before him. Now, keep in mind, God has stayed silent for 400 years up until this point, from Malachi to John the Baptist. God has not spoke. He's not sent a messenger. He's not sent a prophet. But Mark is recalling the Jews, calling out to the Jews, saying, hey, you know that God's been silent, right? He's been silent. But you also know his word said three different times that I'm going to send a messenger. Behold, I'm sending a messenger. I'm sending one, someone from the wilderness, out to the wilderness. I'm sending someone to proclaim the, the word of the Lord. And in this text specifically, he quotes Malachi 3, which should be on the screen for you. Malachi 3 comes before. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, that is the promise, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so Mark literally is looking at these Jews, and he's saying, Do you remember this? Three different times God has said this. God's going to send this messenger. This messenger is going to pave the way for the Messiah. He's going to come from the wilderness. He's going to come from the desert. And so that somebody that comes is John the baptizer, right? He's the one that's in the desert. He's the one that the prophets are saying is going to come. Well, how do you know? How do you know this is the guy? We were talking about this as pastors this week because he sends a hippie. That's how you know. Like God never sends who you think he's going to send. Who does he say? He sends this dude, a real crunchy dude, right? Like he wears chacos, he eats locusts, he drinks honey, smells like patchouli, he drives a Subaru. He sends that guy. He sends that dude. And so we know that that's him because all we've learned this year is that God sends people that don't make any sense, right? We started with a prostitute, if I'm not mistaken, this year to redeem Israel, didn't we? God never sends you, you would think. And here's what is happening. Mark here is drawing out some parallels for us. He's saying John the Baptist is like the prophets of the Old Testament preparing the way for the Lord. He's saying Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one. He's being paralleled to God. And so Mark is doing this because he knows his audience. And so in that, Mark's introduction, just these first few verses, it's not really an introduction at all. It's a confession of faith. Like it's an apologetic sermon that he's given to these people to, to, to convince them this is who Jesus is. Is. He's saying John is the prophet, Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah. John the baptizer said, I will baptize you with water, but he who is coming is going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. He's doing something completely different. He's going to create a new beginning in you, bringing us back again to Genesis. This is so incredible. Man, this is so incredible. Because during their time, okay, uh, for the Jews, baptism was totally normal. I don't know if you know that or not, but it didn't begin with Christianity. Jews would get baptized all the time. They would, they would do hand-washing ceremonies. They would do full-body washing ceremonies. They had to be, uh, wash their hands and feet, baptized like their hands and feet before they would walk into the temple uh, for worship. They did things like this uh, all the time. They would have to do it because they would have to self-cleanse. The only way that they could be seen as clean was if they spent time washing. And so John the Baptist is looking at them and he's saying, the better son is coming. He is he, here. His name is Jesus. What's he going to do? He will cleanse you. 
And he's going to cleanse you in a way that is eternal. He's going to cleanse you in a way that doesn't just fall off because you happen to walk back out in the dirt in your sandals again. He's going to do an ultimate and eternal cleansing. What is he saying? He's saying you don't have to self-cleanse. You don't have to look inside of yourself. You don't have to find nirvana in yourself. You don't have to find salvation in yourself. You have to look for some little beam of light inside of you, but rather the light has come and shown himself in the darkness, and his name is Jesus, and he's the Son, and he's here as promise, and he's going to enter into your mess to clean you up. And he's going to give you then his own power to reside in you, to keep you clean, even when you're not so clean. Like, that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus loves you and makes you lovable. That that Jesus cleans you and you're unclean. And there's no, like, I can put my stain of sin back on me upon professing faith in the Son. But he cleans you forever by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. He literally enters in to us. And so Mark is saying this son is coming to do what religion could never do. He's going to clean you eternally and forever. Tim Keller talks about Jesus coming like this. Hopefully you have this Tim Keller quote. Oh, love TK. We're boys. <laughs> if you know who that is, you know we're most certainly not boys, okay? <laughs> Listen to this though. Man, let this just be fuel for your soul today. He says the ideal has become real. The metaphysical has become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable is someone you can hug. The totally invulnerable has become radically vulnerable. The impossible has become possible. This is what Mark is saying to the people. The Son has come. He's been promised, and he is here. Eastern religion would say that God is a spark, and he's inside of everyone, and you can kind of become like that spark. And the gospel of Mark, you know what it says? It says the power of God is not a spark that goes off in your chest. It is a bomb that goes off in your chest, and he creates something all new about you when you profess faith in the Son, a whole new creation whenever you profess faith in this Son, when you profess faith in him and you receive the cleansing that he has for you. Something altogether different comes whenever you profess faith in him. Let me ask, do you know this? Like, do you know this Jesus? This ideal that has become real, this metaphysical that's become physical, this immortal that has become mortal, this unapproachable, this someone you can hug. Do you know that Jesus of the Bible? Like, that's the Jesus that Mark is showing us. And Tim Keller is helping us understand by extension. Mark is saying there's a whole new creation. There's a whole new beginning. There's a new seed that's been given. There's a new son that has been given. And lastly, he's going to say there's a better king too. Jesus is this better king. We're going to have to read this twice, but Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. We're going to read it once, talk a little bit about it, and then read it again. It goes like this. Linda, if you could put it up. Mark 1, 9 through 11. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Somebody say torn open. And the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And God says, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And you know, that's the affirming word from the father that we're going to receive as well. That you have received if you're in Christ. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All right, so in this text here, last bit, Jesus is the better king. First thing we see here is that Jesus is baptized. That's weird, right? Can we just agree? It's kind of weird. Jesus gets baptized. You ever had that thought? Why did he get baptized? No one? I'm the only? Okay. 
Cool, I'm the only one. Anybody online? Just put that on Facebook. Yep, totally had that thought. We'll talk about it over coffee sometime. Why does Jesus baptize? This is so crazy, church. Like, this blows my mind, this bit right here. Let me, uh, let me explain something to you, then we're going to reread that test that text for you. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of what's called apocalyptic, we use some big words here, there's a lot of what's called apocalyptic language or what's called end time, end times language, or if you want a fa- fancy word, eschatological language, fun $100 word for you to throw out with your friends this holiday season. What'd you guys learn about church? Eschatological, eschatological stuff. Uh, if we were to take though, seriously, if we were to take an eschatological look here at the Old Testament and we would look at what the prophecy said or an end times look here at the Old Testament, what the prophets would say about Jesus, there's a lot that they they say specifically about the coming kingdom, about God's coming kingdom. You see what I'm doing here? The better king has a kingdom that is coming. Whenever you read the Old Testament promises, there are three very specific things that the prophets talk about in the scriptures or they regularly speak of in light of God's kingdom coming. The three things that they talk about is this, the heavens opening, this is in the Old Testament, not just in Mark. The heavens opening, the spirit of God falling on his people, and the affirming voice of the Lord. That's crazy. And Mark has set this thing up perfectly to show this people, like, this is that. This is the kingdom of God coming. This king is here. The inauguration is happening. All of creation has been longing for this Messiah to come. This is that moment. The heavens open, the Spirit falling on God's people, the affirming voice of the Lord. Put up verse 9 for me again through 11. It said, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he what? Saw the heavens being torn open. He saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the voice came from heaven. Everything that the Jews have been promised is happening. I don't know if you've ever had a promise or an expectation of yours met in a way that far exceeded your expectations, but that's exactly what's happening right here. Why does Jesus have to be baptized? To fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the promise, so that in this moment that there can be no deniability as to who this Jesus is. Mark is looking at these Jews and he's saying like, this is what you've been waiting for. Everything that you long for, everything that you crave, everything that you desire, this is that moment, everything that the Old Testament has been pointing to in this moment, the better seed, the better sun is coming, and then in the baptism, what we see then is the kingdom of God is making itself known here in heaven. The better king has been given. It's not just a, a baptism. It's a juvenile. It's, it's, it's two bottom shelf. Like, it is literally an inauguration that is happening in the heavens and in creation. Like, all of heaven showed up for this moment right here. Do you understand? All of the power of God showed up for this moment right here as the king made his way into the water. I mean, think about it. Think about Palm Sunday when they're laying palms on the ground and the the king is on his way. He's on his way to the cross, but he's coming into the city. So also, heaven's long-awaited moment in history is right here. And Jesus goes and he gets into this water and he gets baptized. And this is the part that, like, if it could not get better, church, it just gets better and it should blow our minds. Like, why would Jesus get baptized? One, to fulfill the scriptures. Two, to put the gospel on display. Like, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He's perfect. He's spotless. He's innocent. He's sinless. He's God on display for crying out loud. Why does he get baptized? Because it is a, listen to me, it is a reverse 
Baptism. Think about this for a second. It's a reverse baptism. Whenever you get baptized, whenever we baptize someone over here in the holy hot tub, right about over there in that area, right? You guys know that blow up a Royal King hot tub we use to dunk you in. It's the holy hot tub. You stand there and you're saying, I'm not clean, but I profess faith in Jesus. He cleans me. So I'm going to die with Christ. You go underwater. You come out of the water to symbolize resurrection. I've been resurrected anew. I'm going to continue sinning for sure, but I'm clean because of who Christ is in me, not because of my actions. Does that make sense? That's the gospel. This is a reverse baptism. You have the clean is going to become unclean. The spotless is going to become filthy. The one who does not sin is literally going to get into the murky, murky, dirty waters of the Jordan and wash himself with the sin of everyone who's come before him. Are you still tracking with me? That's what's incredible about it. It's the gospel that is on display. And then Jesus goes into the water. He comes out of the water and boom, like the skies are opened up. And it's not like the picture in your old church or in your grandmama's church where you got this Fabio-looking Jesus on the wall over here and this little beam of light and your Jesus got collarbones and a robe. I don't know. You know a carpenter with collarbones? No. Ain't worth his salt, is he? Our Jesus don't have collarbones. He's a carpenter. You with me? Anybody else? Right? And, and so, but that's the picture, right? You, you grow, I'm looking at some of you. I know we went to church before. If it's Catholic church or older traditional church, they have that picture. This is Fabio looking Jesus with long brown hair, <laughs> white as snow, even though he's from the Middle East, blonde hair, blue eyes, Fabio looking Jesus, little beam of light shining on him. That is not what the text says. That is not what the text says. It says this. It says the skies were torn open. In the Greek, the word is schizo. You know what that means? Schizo. It means to be violently torn apart. There's nothing subtle about that. This is a statement that Mark is making. Right here in this baptism, that the, 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 the skies, like they weren't just like, mm, oh my gosh, I gotta stop. I'm gonna just bump on. And so they weren't just, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so ridiculous. The picture of that picture is so dumb. It does not capture what's happening here. I YouTube the this is way off script. I YouTube the chosen. I want to know. Okay, how did the chosen? Did the chosen get it right? Nope. They get this little fluttering dove that lands on Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well. No. Wait a minute. Everything we know about molecular biology is ripped apart in that moment, right? And you know the other, the only other place that the word schizo is used in the Book of Mark. You know where else it is? The veil at during the crucifixion. That's right. The 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 curtain is violently ripped. Apart. It's not like this little cut, seven-inch thick curtain. It's violently ripped apart. What is Mark doing here? I have no idea anymore what Mark's doing. What's Mark doing here? Dude, he's saying, listen, he's saying this. Everything that stood between God and man ceases to exist. Like the king has come. The better seed has come. The better son has come. The king has come. He doesn't need anyone. Remember last week? He doesn't need anyone to build him a house. He doesn't need anyone to keep his name famous. He doesn't need to establish him forever. He establishes himself forevermore. The king has come. Listen, the very power of God himself has blown a hole in creation. That's what happened here. Violently rips apart. The spirit descends upon him. The book of Matthew and Luke says, descends on him in bodily form. Doesn't even say like an actual dove. Like descends upon him in bodily form. It'll look completely different than what we think. Everything about Mark here is intentional. I mean, he is a master theologian. He's got theological precision, like a, like a master surgeon with a scalpel 
cutting the hearts of people, forcing our heads back to look at Genesis again, even in light of the dove, using Genesis language there as well. In Genesis, we would read the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. You know that text? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. But in Jewish writings, they would actually say the Spirit of God fluttered over the waters. He's just likening everything back to Genesis so that the Jews would look at what's happening here in reality and they would recall all their Bible knowledge and they would say the same power that spoke creation is the very same power that speaks new creation. The king has come. And when new creation is a whole new kingdom, everything is fulfilled. Every single aspect that God has promised is fulfilled in Christ. What's the point of this, Pastor? What's the point? Here's the deal. Take all that time, kind of walk you through those three different things. Because if you don't understand who Jesus is in the Old Testament, you can't really understand who he is in the New Testament. You've got you to learn your Bible. And not only that, but you've got to learn the gospel. How, how does everything point to Christ? How does everything point to him fulfilling all things? And as you do it, man, it just begins to ignite in you this whole new identity, this whole new name for who Jesus is. All of a sudden, when you get to the book of Hebrews and it says the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword to cut through bone and marrow, you're like, yes, it is. It's so alive, like it just comes alive to us. And as we read into God's word, as we kind of pull out truths of it, it reads into us and pulls out truths from us. Nasty truths that we don't want to share with anyone. And what we begin to find is that Jesus becomes more and more and more beautiful. And we don't have to look at the culture or the world or some self-help or some other form of religion or some other spirituality or some other health diet. We don't have to look at family. We don't have to look at friends. We don't have to look at vocation or bonuses or Christmas Eve. Christmas, yeah, Christmas Eve and Christmas. Do you know something about this week? It's going to let you down. It's going to let you down, isn't it? It it let you down last week. But no, 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 you understand. We're coming out of COVID. We're going to get together as family. We're not going to do it on Zoom. It's still going to pale in comparison to what your expectations are. Because it's not a good Savior. It's not a good Messiah. It's just going to form in you more doubt. And so as you get to know God's word and you get to see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how he's redeeming and how he's saving, listen, he just becomes more and more beautiful. And as you see the promises of God just coming to life over and over and over again, now maturity begins to happen in your walk. Doubt begins to cease. You don't begin to look at other gospels, but rather you begin to look at everything else through the gospel. And man, it brings everything to life for you. Why don't you go ahead and just stand up with me and we'll spend some time together preparing our hearts for communion here. I mean, the beauty of the gospel is that that we don't have to have it all together. That's what's the most beautiful aspect of the gospel is that our identity is not in our stuff, it's not in our behaviors, it's not in our sin, it's not in our past, but it's most certainly in Christ and he has come. He's the better seed, he's the better son, he's the better king. And whenever we take communion, this is what we're celebrating, this reality that Jesus is all of these things. Um, that he comes as the better seed, he comes as the better Adam to do what Adam could not do, which is recreate creation. He comes as the better son, he's willing to die in our place as our substitute. He comes as the better king to inaugurate his kingdom so we don't have to try to keep establishing our own. And so when you profess faith in Christ, that's what you're professing faith 
in, you're saying, I, I, don't actually, I can't actually do this on my own. Looking into myself is not sufficient. It's not working. I need someone better than me, greater than me, from outside of me to come in and fix me. And we have that in Christ. So I'm going to read for you what Paul says in regards to communion we read every week. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So church, we are in a season of Advent, just as the Israelites were in a season of Advent. We're waiting on the seed, the son, this king to return to us, and he will. But until he does, our only responsibility then is to model the maturity that we've been called to, to confess and to repent. And so communion is a tangible opportunity for us to do that, to confess our sins before the Lord and to also then take and eat and feast and repent and be reminded of the good news of who Christ is. And so if you're unable to grab a communion cup on your way in, feel free at any point between now and the end of the gathering to come up and get one out of the basket and take and eat when you wish.